All right, so Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 is our passage today. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Richard, one of the elders here. Uh, it's spring break this week, so um, lots of families are out, which makes it kind of a funny time to be preaching on parents and children. But we preach through Ephesians, and whatever comes next is what we're covering. So here we are. So if you're joining us online, families, welcome. Or if you're catching this later, glad to have you. Let's pray, and then we'll get into interpreting God's Word together. Uh, God, I pray that, that you would... Fill this place with your presence. You promise that you are with us when we gather. You promise that you've put your spirit in us if we follow you. Um, but we also know that you are particularly present in certain places and times and that you can make us particularly aware of and in tune with your presence. And so I pray that you would do that this morning, that we would not just hear about you and sing about you, but that we would encounter you here this morning and be transformed by you. And as we look into your word, as the psalm says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, soon after the, the Lord God led his people out of captivity in Egypt, he met with Moses, his chosen leader of the people, on Mount Sinai and gave them a law for how to live as the people of God. The first part of the law given to Moses is what we know as the Ten Commandments now. You can find it in Exodus 20 and then again in Deuteronomy. Only one of those Ten Commandments came with a promise that if the people obeyed it, their, quote, days would be long in the land that the Lord is giving to them. The promise wasn't attached to the commandment you might expect. It wasn't a promise to go with, like, don't murder uh, wasn't tied to don't steal or don't commit adultery. It wasn't even attached to you should have no other gods before me. The one commandment out of the Ten Commandments that came with a promise, as Paul mentions in the passage today from Ephesians, is honor your father and mother. Exodus 20 verse 12 says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that you're, the Lord your God is giving you. So the Apostle Paul picks up this commandment and its striking promise in today's scripture reading. And before we get into this particular passage, these four verses, which actually have a lot in them, I want to zoom out a little bit to the full context of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. So we've been teaching through the book of Ephesians um, on and off since last fall with breaks for Advent and Christmas and some other things. And if you're around at the beginning of the series, you may remember Pastor Matt teaching that Paul's letter to the Ephesians has really, at a high level, two distinct halves. The first half, chapters one through three, is descriptive. Here's what God has done for us. Here's who you are now by grace. And then the second half, chapters four through six, where we are now is mostly prescriptive. Given what's true about God and about you from chapters one through three, how should you live? Now, there are two mistakes Christians can make with topics like this. So it's important that we avoid both of them. And I wanna frame that before we get into the particulars of this passage. 
when we encounter passages in the New Testament with commands for how we should live, one mistake is to think that obeying the commands somehow earns God's favor, like somehow makes God love us. But none of us is good enough to earn God's favor. Back in Ephesians 2, earlier in the same letter, it says, we were dead in our sins, and God in his great love and mercy saved us by grace, moved towards us when we couldn't do anything to save ourselves. So it wasn't because of our own efforts. So that one mistake is thinking we earn God's favor by following the rules. But there's an opposite mistake we can make, and I think it's actually the one that's more common in the American church today, which is to say, since we're totally saved by grace, it doesn't matter how we live. Sometimes this sounds like, you know, well, if it's not a salvation issue, it doesn't really matter. It's just kind of good advice. However, the testimony of the New Testament from Jesus through all the apostles is that genuine saving faith in Christ has fruit. And that fruit looks like obedience to God's commands. Uh, certainly not perfectly, as Paul himself lamented in Romans 7, where he says, I still do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. But there's a trajectory to your life once you've been saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus in John 14 said, if you love me, you will obey my command. And in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and this is key, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So as we're in the back half of Ephesians here, we need to avoid those two mistakes. When Paul says, here's how to live as a Christian, we shouldn't think, this is how I need to live to be good enough for God, because we can't be, nor should we think, this doesn't really matter because I'm saved by grace. Instead, we should think, since God loves me and saved me by grace, how do I live in a way that aligns with his will for me? In the middle of chapter five, which we studied a few weeks ago, Paul writes, be filled with the Holy Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on to describe some examples and nuances of that submission in the church applied to particular sets of relationships. So last week we looked at how a marriage between a spirit-filled Christian man and a spirit-filled Christian woman should look in that mutual submission. Today we're turning our attention to the relationship between parents and children. And I think it's, it's even a little broader than that. As we see the relationship between parents and children, we see something about the relationship between generations and the people of God. So uh, there will be several points where even if you don't have children at home, or even if you're not a child who's at home, there's still parts of this that are immediately relevant to you. So today's big theme is this. The spirit-filled life demonstrates a distinctive way of interacting as parents and children, including as adult children, as we'll see, which all of us are. Uh, so we're gonna look at two things. The spirit-filled way children interact with their parents, including as adults, and the spirit-filled way parents interact with their children. First, Paul addresses the children. Uh, this, by the way, is already a departure from his culture. In Greco-Roman culture, an important teacher wouldn't bother addressing the children directly. He'd talk to the parents about what to do with their children. It's like, parents, here's what you should tell your children. We see an example of this in the Gospels when people are bringing children to Jesus and the disciples rebuke the parents of the children. They're basically saying, leave the rabbi alone. He's too busy and too important to be worrying about your kids. He needs to talk to important people like adults. But of course, Jesus says, no, let the children come to me Paul's doing the same thing here when he addresses children directly as members of the church community. 
Um, one historian I read said that this letter would have been read out loud when it got to the church in Ephesus and then surrounding churches as they passed it around, and that 40% of the people in the congregation would have been children. So Paul is addressing them directly, and that's why we've kept the kids in here this morning, because it seemed really strange to be talking about how Paul is talking directly to the children who we've sent somewhere else in the back. <laughs> so we have a few kids in here today. I know a lot of our kids are actually out traveling on spring break, so they're uh, on the stream or um, catching this later. But it's important that Paul is directly talking to the children. So he says in verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, remember the context here. Paul is showing us how being filled with the Spirit and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ looks in the context of different relationships in the household. So children, what's your responsibility? It's pretty simple. Obey your parents. Now, for this obedience, Paul gives two hows and two whys. Let's look at each of those. The first how is in the Lord. This letter was written in Greek originally, and in Greek, the phrase in the Lord modifies obey, not parents. So it can mean obey your parents as an expression of obeying Christ, and it can also mean obey your parents insofar as they don't command you to do anything contrary to the Lord. Um, but it doesn't mean obey your parents only if they're Christians, uh, which was probably important in that audience, as you may have, you know, even uh, I know some of you became Christians before your parents, like maybe in youth group or something. And so the command still applies in that case. Now, if your parents command you to sin, you shouldn't obey them. So that's part of obeying in the Lord, is obeying what the will of the Lord would be. Um, your first obedience is to the Lord. But I think Paul is dealing with the common case here where he's speaking to children and parents in the church, and he's able to assume that most of the time parents are at least trying to do their duty of guiding the parents, or guiding their children well. And he'll get to the parents in a minute about that duty. So that's the first how, in the Lord. The second how that Paul gives for how do you obey your parents as a child is with honor. Paul quotes the fifth commandment from Exodus 20, which we've already referenced, honor your father and mother. And this speaks to the attitude of obedience. As a kid, when you obey, um, it's not grudgingly obeying, it's obeying with honor. The Hebrew word in the original commandment translated honor is the word kavod, which is, has the sense of like, giving weight to something or someone. It's actually the same word in Hebrew that's translated for the glory of God, like giving God weight and importance. So to honor your parents means to treat them like they're important and they have weight in your life to praise their accomplishments, to care about their wishes, to seek their counsel, to look for wisdom in their words. Uh, so that's increasing or giving kavod or weight to a parent. Uh, conversely, I decrease the kavod or weightiness or honor of someone when I treat their words as insignificant or when I show contempt for them or when I ridicule them or criticize them. So in this context, a child obeying with an attitude of honor means not just grudgingly doing what your parents tell you to do, but obeying in such a way that indicates that you care about your parents' wishes and you want to please them, not because of the negative consequences that you're afraid of, but because you give your parents weight and importance. Now, speaking to the children listening, 
you're going to have to depend on God to do this because you're not always going to feel like it. So pray that, your par- uh, pray that God would help you to honor your parents even when it's hard. Now, by the way, um, this isn't just for children living at home. Um, so this actually speaks to most of us in the room here. Um, in this passage, Paul is talking to children living at home and commanding them to obey. And the command to obey goes away when you grow up and you have your own household. But throughout scripture, the fifth commandment was treated as being binding for all of life, not just for childhood. So children were to honor their parents in a particular way by obeying them, but adults were expected to continue honoring their parents throughout life in a way that's appropriate to each season of life. This is pretty countercultural for us because in our culture, any associations and relationships are treated as voluntary and temporary. If they work for you, you continue them. Uh, So we think of children in the home as having some obligation to their parents, but then as they become adults, suddenly they're free and independent and no longer owe anything to their parents. But that's not how the Bible talks about the relationship between parents and children. We have this lifelong responsibility to honor them, to give them weight, to speak well of them, to care for them as they age. And again, that's not always easy. We're fallen, broken people, and so are our parents. So all of these relationships require prayer, dependence on God, and a reliance in the Spirit in us. And pointing back to chapter 5, where we talk about being filled with the Spirit in order to do these things. So those are the two hows for obeying your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, and obey your parents with honor. Then Paul gives two whys two reasons for obeying. The first is because, and he says literally, it is right. Obeying your parents is the way that God intended the parent-child relationship to work. It's right. It's well-ordered. As one commentator put it, children learn to obey the heavenly father by obeying their earthly fathers. God trains us to respond to his fatherhood, which we cannot see, by responding to earthly fatherhood, which we can see. The second reason Paul gives for obeying your parents is because it's good for you. Verses two and three, where he quotes the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That it may go well with you, meaning obey your parents because it's good to grow up in a well-ordered home where you're not always fighting or getting in trouble or getting hurt. And that you may live long in the land, meaning obey your parents because they have wisdom for you to help you make better choices and experience goodness in your life. Now, a quick aside uh, here about how we make sense of what we read in the Bible. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you in the land and you may live long is a proverbial statement. It's a proverb. And these are common throughout the Bible because they're common throughout ancient literature. You see Proverbs all the time. We have a whole book of Proverbs in the middle of the Bible. But our culture often struggles with Proverbs because we're a culture that loves to focus on the exception. People hear a proverbial statement like this and the immediate response is, but what about, as if coming up with an exception to the proverb makes it wrong or even dangerous. So let's look at a different proverb and then work our way back to this one. Um, I just kind of picked one randomly out of the book of Proverbs, which is a whole book of a father giving proverbial advice to a son. Um, 1320 says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 
And people in our culture hear that and, and think, that's not true. I can think of plenty of examples of people who had wise friends and didn't become wise, or plenty of examples of people with foolish friends who came out just fine. But of course, when the father in Proverbs is giving this kind of advice to his son, that's not what he's saying. It's, it looks like a logical claim. If you walk with the wise, you will always become wise. But it's actually a claim about probability. Like having wise friends increases your odds of becoming wise yourself. So if we go back to today's passage in Ephesians where it says, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. If we mistake it with, for a logical claim, we can come up with exceptions pretty easily. Like, are there evil parents unworthy of honor? Yeah, uh, unfortunately. Are there commands from parents that children shouldn't obey? Yeah, I can think of lots of them off the top of my head. Are there obedient children who honor their parents and still experience bad outcomes in life? For sure, that's real too. But if a people as a whole has a culture of children obeying and honoring parents, will they tend to collectively experience more goodness, stability, longevity? I think we have to say yes, and that's what God is saying with the promise in the fifth commandment. And you see this sort of thing throughout scripture. So when you run into a proverbial statement like this, if you find in yourself a tendency to jump to the exception, to the, but what about? Uh, I'd encourage you to slow down and try reframing the proverb as a probability claim, a claim about what's more likely to happen in certain situations, and then consider what it's telling you about how to get on the right side of that probability it's okay to still think and talk about the exceptions because they matter and they're real, but we can't let the exceptions blind us to the wisdom that's in the proverb. And so many things in scripture make so much more sense when you treat it as the kind of literature it actually is, whether that's proverbs or poetry or, or whatever, instead of treating everything as a logical truth claim, because a lot of it, it's just not how ancient literature works. And we don't want to miss that. Now, continuing with our passage, lest we think that obeying only matters when the parents actually prove that they know better than you, we have a really interesting example in the Gospels, um, which is the 12-year-old Jesus. Luke records that Jesus at 12 years old was, quote, filled with wisdom. We see this picture of him talking with the adult uh, religious experts in the temple and amazing them with his wisdom. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that the young Jesus was without sin. And then we have this pretty striking verse, Luke 2, 51, right after Jesus has been reasoning in the temple in Jerusalem with the adult experts. It says, and Jesus went down from Jerusalem with Mary and Joseph, his earthly parents, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus, who, whose parents were created by and through him, submitted to them yeah, on earth. So submission isn't about lack of confidence. And it's important that we see that as we read through this section of Ephesians. It's not about lack of confidence. Children aren't commanded to obey their parents because their parents always do know better or are always right. They're commanded to obey their parents in the Lord because it's right and good to do so. It's the way God designed his world to generally work. Now, fortunately for those of us who are our parents, God in his wisdom makes obedience to parents somewhat progressive. Um, babies can't really obey or disobey all that much. 
<laughs> they, you just basically keep them alive. And then as they get older, they become more capable of doing good and disobeying. Their ability to cause trouble grows. A toddler can get into more trouble than a baby, but less trouble than a teenager. So <laughs> I actually had a picture of this this week. We'd, our family just got ducks for, for eggs and foraging in our garden and stuff. And they're about you know, palm size now. And palm-sized ducklings can't get into very much trouble. They're just running around in their little uh, pen and drinking water and eating little tiny pieces of food. When they're full-sized ducks, though, they can cause a lot of trouble. <laughs> they can make a huge mess. And so when they're small, we're having to figure out, how do we do this? What are the systems that will not just keep them alive, but keep them from causing chaos in our lives? And it's the same thing when... Um, kids are learning obedience. We start small with, this, with small stakes, like don't touch that thing. And you learn that mom and dad have good instructions that will keep you from hurting yourself when the stakes are fairly small. And then it's easier to continue obedience as a child gets older and the stakes get higher. And it's things like come home when you agreed that you would, do your schoolwork, stay away from drugs, like high stakes, and if you haven't built a habit of obedience up to that point, that parents guide me in a good direction, you're not prepared to have good outcomes in those higher stakes. So this brings us to verse four, where Paul turns his attention to parents' responsibility. And he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Every word in this verse is doing work, so... Let's break it down. Uh, it seems pretty straightforward, but every little thing in here matters, and there's some nuance to it. So first off, um, very first word, fathers. Paul is giving these instructions for the relationship between parents and children right after he told husbands to lead in their marriages via Christ-like, self-giving love. Now, by addressing fathers as representative of both parents, he's saying, fathers, you have primary responsibility for how your children are raised. You don't get to pawn off that responsibility on your wife and check out. Of course, it's done together when children have both parents, but God holds fathers responsible in a special way. And single or neglected mothers have to fill in for a father's absence and that's the church should come around them and support them because that's, uh, it's harder than the way God intended it to be. So to fathers, and by extension, mothers in collaboration with fathers, Paul gives two commands about raising their children, one negative and one positive. First, the negative one. Do not provoke your children to anger. Or in some translations, it says, do not exasperate your children. How can a father or a mother provoke their children to anger? Well, lots of ways. Here's a few. Harsh criticism, excessive discipline, inconsistent rules, uh, manipulative guilt trips, insensitivity to how different children are different. Uh, that last one is the one that I struggle with the most and have to apologize for and repent of most often. Uh, my three sons are all great young men and I'm really proud of them all. And they're all really different with different strengths and weaknesses and needs and fears and struggles. And I'm most likely to be exasperating to them when I forget that and treat them as if they're the same and need the same things. I should mention, uh, 
we're, we're talking to fathers about not doing this, but as I talk about this, you're probably, uh, you probably have some experience of having been on the wrong side of that, being the child who was exasperated by a parent who was a sinner and um, going to God for grace on that is the way to find healing and to be able to continue to honor your parents as they do that. Uh, we can't do that on our own strength. So Paul saying to fathers and by extension to mothers who collaborate in this process, if your children are commanded to obey you in the Lord as they were in the previous three verses, don't make it difficult and frustrating for them to do so. <laughs> make it easy for them by giving them rules that make sense, uh, by showing them love as you do it, by seeing them as individuals and precious and in your care. But this definitely doesn't mean, because we're afraid of making our children angry or exasperating them, just indulging them and letting them have their own way. The phrase translated provoke your children to anger or exasperate is the same word used in the, the Greek Old Testament of Paul's time to refer to God being angry at Israel for disobeying him. So God would be provoked to anger in this way when his people disobeyed him. So it suggests a righteous anger, not a selfish anger. As one commentator said, an exasperated child is one who has a right to be provoked because of the incongruities between a parent's stated beliefs and the parent's actual behaviors. So it's not just keep your kids happy at all costs, it's don't provoke them to righteous anger at your parenting. We also know that it's not just about keeping kids happy by indulging them because Paul continues with the positive command in the other half of verse four, uh, which is bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The phrase bring them up doesn't really do the Greek justice here. It's the same Greek word translated nourish. If you go back to chapter five, verse 29, and it's talking about uh, nourishing your own body. Uh, so there's this notion of ongoing care. The reformer John Calvin translated the word, uh, or the phrase as, let your children be fondly cherished. So it's not just bring them up, it's bring them up in this fond, nurturing, caring kind of way. Now, discipline and instruction. These words in Greek actually have the opposite connotations of the English translations, which I think is kind of funny. The word translated discipline has a positive connotation in Greek, and the one translated instruction has a more negative one, and it, it reads like the opposite to us. Um, so discipline here can also be translated training. It's about modeling, teaching, encouraging a godly pattern of life, actively guiding your kids into doing the right thing. The word translated instruction here is more like correction or guidance, so redirecting them onto the right path, warning them about behaviors to avoid, intervening when they do the wrong thing. Usually I don't find the King James translation of the Bible clearer than other more modern translations, but it kind of is in this verse. It says in the King James, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So we get a goal here, which is bringing children up in the Lord to know him and follow his ways. And then we get a balance of training and correction to guide them towards that goal. 
So our parenting shouldn't just be cheering when our children do good, nor should it just be correcting when our children do wrong. It's this loving, nurturing balance of instruction and discipline. And that balance is going to be different with different kids and in different seasons. It requires an engaged, nurturing awareness. Now, Paul is clear here that bringing up children in the Lord is ultimately a father's responsibility, but from the whole of Scripture, it's clear that it doesn't have to be done alone, and it shouldn't be done alone. First and foremost, the mother is a partner in this shared mission of raising children in the Lord. And we see this all the way back in Genesis, where it says God created Eve as a helper fit for Adam to share in his mission. Schools and churches are also important collaborators in raising children in the Lord. And we should really have a culture here of helping each other achieve this. So if you're a parent, you know, helping other parents uh, and encouraging them in their parenting. If you're single, uh, be connected with families and support them in helping to guide their, their children towards the Lord. Uh, so one kind of immediate application there is uh, what other children outside of your own family do you even know in the church? Are you aware of what they need and how can you support them in this? That makes it a whole lot easier for parents to do the right thing here if they're not on their own, or feeling like they're on their own. The important thing is that as fathers, we can't just hand off that responsibility to everybody else. We have to own it, but then collaborate with others to be effective in doing it. Finally, when it comes to parents' task of raising children in the Lord, we should remember that this is an extension of being filled with the Spirit from back in chapter 5, meaning we do this by God's power and by depending on Him. So prayer is a critical part of parenting. We should be praying with our children. We should be praying for our children. We should be praying for ourselves as we try to nurture our children. This is a thing that can only be done with God's help. And I remember a, a wise man telling me years ago when my children were younger that there will be times where you can't uh, sort of talk or instruct or discipline your children into obedience for certain things, no matter how much you repeat it, <laughs> they're not going to get it. The only way it's going to happen is by the power of God. So you should be t praying about that thing at least as much as you should be telling your kid about that thing. <laughs> and, and I continue to do that even with them in their 20s. Uh, there, there are many things where if it's going to happen, it's going to be from the power of God. Uh, so we should be depending on God in that. And likewise, for those of you who don't have young children that you're raising, be praying for other kids in the church and be praying for their parents because they need it, especially at certain ages when you're very much in the trenches. So to sum up, children, obey your parents in the Lord with an attitude of honoring them because it's right and because it's good. And children... Adult children, continue honoring your parents through all of life as appropriate for each season. And I know for some of us, that may be harder than others, and so this is a place to go to God and go to your community and figure out how to do it. It's not going to look the same for everybody at all times. Parents, nurture your children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Fathers, own your particular responsibility for this. Don't just hand it off to your wife, your kid's school, 
for Sunday school, but collaborate with them. Everybody else in the church, support parents and children in doing this thing well, including praying for them. And in all these things, be filled with the Spirit, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and pray to the Father for his help and his power. And let's pray now. Father, it's, it can be hard to obey our parents. It can be hard to honor our parents throughout all of life. Uh, it can be hard to nurture and instruct our children well. It can be hard to support each other as different families try to do this. And so in all of this, we depend on your spirit, your word, your work in us and through us. So would you make this a community that is characterized by that mutual submission out of reverence for Christ and love and care for one another. Uh, children who obey their parents in the Lord with honor, parents who lovingly nurture and guide their children to follow you. That we may experience your goodness in our lives and in our community and be a witness to the world of what families and a community of families can look like. Uh, would you work in us to restore broken relationships with parents? Uh, by your grace, would you enable people who struggle to honor their parents as adults to find some goodness there? Uh, would you bring reconciliation to broken relationships, that you'd be glorified in those. You are a God who restores broken things and makes broken things beautiful. So would you do that in relationships between children and parents today? I pray all of this for Christ's sake. Amen.